This is a HeadGum Podcast. While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. Hey, here's a story. Don't get off flight at 6 a.m. Don't do it. It's too okay. early to fly. It's too early to do all the things you need to do to get on a plane and go somewhere, <laughs> is what I have to say. Welcome to Overdue. It's a podcast about the books you've been meaning to read. My name is Craig. My name's Andrew, and you can tell some jokes about airline food, too. Like, what other? What are the hot plane insights do you have to lay down on Listen, me? Listen, dude, if you go for a whiz-bang weekend in Durham North, North, Durham, North Carolina, I highly recommend uh-huh. all the food that I ate there. It was a pretty good time. Um, but then you got you to gotta get a cheapo flight because you, you got too much stuff going on. You can't be spent all sorts of money on flights. So you get a 6 a.m. flight for a 90-minute flight. Which means that you go to a wedding and you have a great time and you uh-huh. see some friends and you have and a then few... you and then you leave the wedding at eight thirty at night. <laughs> you leave the wedding at ten and then you get up after eating a bag of chips at three thirty and then your Uber driver cancels and you get in a stranger's Uber and they uh-huh. went to a different wedding but are going to the same airport at the same time. It's a riddle. Uh-huh. Sure. And then you encounter the weirdest dog sniffing approach I've ever seen. Dog sniffing, guard dog sniffing. Mm. I've is, been up why for were you two days. Guard dogs. Yeah, no, you're <laughs> obviously doing great. We're going to talk about We Have Always Lived in the Castle by Shirley Jackson, but I've always are, lived first in I plane hear, travel. <laughs> first, I got to hear more about this amazing plane story where we, you got up early we and that's the story. We went into the security <laughs> line, Andrew... Uh-huh. And then there was a man who made us line up in three different rows like we were getting ready for a physical challenge on Mark Summers Double Dare. Uh-huh. And he instructed Is that how that worked? And then he instructed us to each walk in like teams of 3 uh-huh. past a dog who would then walk behind us sniffing our butts to see if we had drugs in them. This it feels was, yeah, this feels like a new thing because the last time I flew a couple weeks ago I also had to walk through like a dog zone. Like it was a it was between the podium where the person like looks at your ticket and ID yes. and like scribbles something on it. And I bet those scribbles don't mean anything. This it's, is a conspiracy theory uh-huh, that I have. Uh-huh. And then you gotta walk to, to get to the the bit with the bins and the and the, yes. the scanners, you gotta walk through the dog zone. Yes. And the dog is just there. To sniff up in your business. Correct. But, but instead of just going up and down the line, they got the special dog zone now. Yes. So I don't know why they, what necessitated the creation of the dog zone, but it's not my favorite zone. I just haven't seen the dog zone where they had multiple people going through it at once. They encouraged us to stay together. God forbid someone have a longer stride and well, break the dog Well, because if you break zone. off from if you break off from the pack, the dog will try to herd you <laughs> more aggressively and they don't want they don't want that. Also dogs shouldn't have jobs, just let them play. Dogs service animal is a good job. That's for a, a dog. great that's a great job. For I a feel dog. bad that we let dogs be cops. <laughs> the thing i really don't love they have such kind and gentle natures and we force them into being cops yeah it's the ultimate cop move oh man to make a dog into a cop (laughs) well we are here to talk about books not dog cops um then every week one of us tells a story about a book that they read to Mm -hmm. the other person and the listeners you at Mm -hmm. home so andrew What did you read this week? I read this week, We Have Always Lived in the Castle by Shirley Jackson, Mm. who you might remember from such works as The Lottery and The Haunting of Hill House. Yes, we have covered both of those works for this fine podcast program, and in in honor of episode 53, I decided to talk about my airport adventures for five minutes, Uh and in episode 53, we talked about grocery store animals for five minutes, (laughs) so seems appropriate. 
Well, so we're actually we're repeating ourselves Not directly repeating ourselves because our material is always fresh. No, kitchen, you wanted but... to know which would win in a fight, Food Lion or Giant Eagle, and don't start it because everyone Ooh, can go back and listen a, to episode. That was a really good question, though. I remember I thought about that in the car, and I thought about it for like three days. I was like, "Yeah, I got to ask Craig this hot yeah, one on my podcast." Um, we've also talked about Haunting of Hill House, as you said, <laughs> and that uh, was in one of our early. So I was spooked over a couple years ago, and I told a story about me spooking myself by looking at a closet with my glasses off. So, like, go look up those hot banger episodes. At this point, we could just be a recap podcast for oh, our own podcast. Kind of what I'm—that's what I'm trying to get started. And <laughs> so, Shirley Jackson, this was her last novel. It was. Um, she published uh something else. There's something else that came out like maybe a year after this, I think. But this was like her last big novel. Yeah. Um, and then there, she had some posthumous work that was published um, with the help of her husband and, and then some other people along mm-hmm. the way. And um, this this guy is thematically sort of of a piece with the lottery in ways that we can we can talk oh, about okay. in a little bit. Um, I know, like, if you wanted to talk about any author stuff, we can get there in a second. I did want to bring up the uh, film adaptation of "We Have Always Lived in the Castle." It's called "We Have Always Lived in the Castle." Sure. <laughs> Um, and it was released to uh, theaters and on demand, so it is kind of a direct-to-video thing here in the, the U.S. of A. Here in the states, but it, it premiered at the L.A. Film Festival in 2018 to positive to mixed reviews. Yes, yes. Um, it but came the out main the like, ma- the headline is that it has Sebastian Stan in it, and if you watch the trailer for it on YouTube. All the Sebastian stands are out in the comments. Oh, being very thirsty for him, and so I think that if anybody saw this movie, it was because of him. It's. I think it came out like for real, for real, a few weeks ago, and it yeah. came out on May seventeenth. Okay, okay, like two weeks ago. Yeah. Um, there's also Andrew. Did you see that it was adapted into a musical drama in 2010? I did uh, not see that. Yes, and um, I don't plan to see it at, at <laughs> Yale Rep. Um, re- respected playwright Adam Bach and his co-writer Todd Almond, and it was directed by Ann Kaufman. These are people who are who have successful careers in the theater world, and I can't find a cast recording for this show, which leads me <laughs> to believe that um, New York Times uh, later disgraced uh, theater critic Charles Isherwood. Uh, was not lying when he said, there is nothing wrong in the new musical We Have Always Lived in the Castle uh, at the Yale Repertory Theater, and that's exactly the problem, <laughs> which is a pretty huh. good opening. He went on to say that it wasn't a sp- it wasn't spooky enough and they didn't find a good musical mode for the spooky parts of the book. So Yeah, it would be hard to find because you couldn't do like a life-affirming, like rousing score. It would be kind of a bummer to do a spooky score. <laughs> yeah. I saw a clip, it, like a 30-second clip of someone singing, and it, it was like a girl singing sweetly to weird music, mm-hmm. like atonal. Anaclina weird music. <laughs> it's not spooky, but but not like uh, like poppy. Um, so briefly, Shirley Jackson um, we've talked a little bit about her before, as we said. She uh, lived 1916 to 1965, unfortunately passed at the young age of 48. She did claim to be born in 1919, but that's not true. Um, she, gotcha. <laughs> gotcha. Gotcha, Shirley Jackson. She met her husband, Stanley Edgar Hyman, while she was uh, up at Syracuse, working on a lit magazine. And I don't think that they had a great marriage, but they did stay together for the length of it. And then they um, have like four kids, something like yes, that. Yes, yes. Um, and she won a lot of awards for short stories that she published. The lottery is is one of them. Um, Hyman referred to her general reclusiveness. She believed her books would speak for her clearly enough over the years. She kind of resisted interviews and, and being out there in the public eye, um, which I'm sure had like a double-edged sword because she also complained about being a, quote, faculty wife at Bennington um, where Hyman taught, and I think she was kind of isolated. Um, and that's like, it cuts both ways. If you're sure. generally someone who does not want that attention from the press, but then you are like kind of struggling to deal with whatever attention you are getting in your smaller community. 
Um, and yeah, I think she, what she ended up passing from something that may have been a cardiac arrest, but it was exacerbated by a whole host of issues, including smoking, and she was being treated for anxiety at the time. And I think this book has been referred to as like a pain. Is that the word? Pay P A P A E. Uh, wait, that yeah, one. I know, I know the word. <laughs> the one you with mean. three vowels in it. That I don't ends- know how to say it or spell it. But I'm pretty sure I know roughly what it means. And pay, I think you're using it correctly. Pay into agoraphobia, I believe this book has been referred to. You could to. just say tribute. Yeah, you could. But then Craig wouldn't have to stumble all over the word, which is clearly what they planned. Um, and uh, after her passing, as we said, uh, Hyman released the posthumous volume, Come Along With Me. Um, in 1996, they found a crate of unpublished stories in her, like under her barn. Um, call, and then they published it as just an ordinary day. Uh, and then, what a weird place and <laughs> container in which to find it's like a box unpublished stories in your barn. You know, well, um, I hope I have a whole crate of unpublished works that I can put in my barn when I die. You got to start working on that barn then. Yeah, one one thing at a time, man. Yeah, that's fair. Right now I got no barn and no <laughs> manuscripts, so I'm really not ready. Uh, there was a recent collection uh, of short stories and lectures, I think, called Let Me Tell You that came out. And this was kind of neat. It has a quote about it's her my writing. favorite Alanis Morissette mm-hmm. song. It has a quote about her it's writing not a very process. Good joke, but it's what I said. <laughs> Uh, and this is just interesting if you want to think about what it might have been like to either be Shirley Jackson or just like hang out with her. Uh, most of my time actually is spent doing things that require no very great imaginative ability. And the only way to make these mechanical jobs more palatable is to think about something else while I am doing them. I tell myself stories all day long and have managed to weave a fairy tale of infinite complexity around the inanimate objects in my house, so much so that no one in my family is surprised to find me putting the waffle iron away on a different shelf because in my story it has quarreled with the toaster. And if I left them together, (laughs) they might come to blows. They had quarreled incidentally over my getting some of the frozen waffles you drop in the toaster and the waffle iron was furious. It looks kind of crazy, of course, but it does take the edge off cold reality and sometimes it turns into real stories so she was either a hoot or like man you gotta stop or talking about the weird beard yeah <laughs> <laughs> and probably both actually um well I, and she and and that's the kind of you're describing to me a certain kind of movie character sort mm. of like the the movie version of mary poppins who oh sure yes in the movie is very fun and and vivacious and is <laughs> Just the talk of the town, but in real life would be kind of tiresome to hang out with all the time. Yeah, and she would probably talk about that. Stop trying to give me sugar. I'll just take the medicine. (laughs) I don't need a song about. You already convinced me that this medicine makes me feel good. I don't need to do. I don't need to make it a game to clean my room. I'll just. I'll just clean. I'm tired. What about money? Can you give me money instead, Mary Poppins? Let me go to bed. No, I. You made me give my tuppence to feed the birds. It's. I'm all out of money. Um, so she, her legacy was kind of, uh, put in place in a couple of different ways. Um, the Shirley Jackson award was established in 2007, which is given to achievement in psychological suspense and horror. I did a browse of the list of what's won so far. The only thing I recognized is, uh, that book Annihilation, which was made in that movie with, like uh, Gina Rodriguez and Natalie Portman, where they go into like the magic woods. Who knows what happens? I'm afraid I have no idea what you were talking okay. about. It's it's somewhere on one of our lists. We'll end up reading it at some point. <laughs> okay. Um, and then in 2015, Andrew, let me know how you feel about this one. Okay. Hit in me. 2015, folks in Bennington started celebrating Shirley Jackson Day on June 27th, which is the day the lottery takes place. In the Bennington, story, is that the, the lottery? community that she was that she like lived in and the, yeah the bennington vermont is arguably based on yeah yeah is that a good day in the story the lottery if you it's recall a, i saw a a tweet that was critiquing a great gatsby themed party <laughs> in which the person expressed puzzlement that the lesson that we had taken from the great gatsby was that it was fun to throw big parties <laughs> Please come to my Breaking like, Bad meth party. Yeah, this like this similarly misunderstands the <laughs> the horror and the and the 
dystopia at the center of sure. the lottery. Yeah. Um, and then last but uh, not, well, maybe least, um, our favorite uh, literary critic, Harold Bloom, who has ragged on all manner of author, as we've talked about on the oh, show. this guy. Yeah. So, like, Joyce Carol Oates is one of the folks who's published articles, like, kind of really praising her and, and trying to... Uh, canonize her there's an article called the witchcraft of shirley jackson which is behind the paywall for the new york review of books so i can't quote it by joyce carol Oates, but <laughs> apparently pretty good um uh, but harold bloom waged into apparently what wikipedia calls the literary canon wars of the early 1990s because novels do what nintendo don't get me right yeah no i get you um he published a book called the western canon where uh he argues that any sort of like critical lens like feminism or marxism or anything might like be against what any good work is about so we should just toss it all out in the garbage um and he lumped shirley jackson in there and said that uh, her narration was kind of shallow and not worth the time he seems to be one of the few people to really latch on to that opinion yeah, the um, the introduction in the the copy that I read, which I looked, and it doesn't look like it's it's attributed to anybody. I don't know who wrote the introduction for this bad boy. Is this the Penguin edition? Do you know? I know uh, yes, Penguin th- Classics. Oh, I think I might have the the guy's name. Like, well, Lethem? see if you can find it. Jason, I don't know. Jonathan Lethem, maybe. Let me see. Jason Statham wrote the. <laughs> and th- this person talks a little bit about jackson's position in the canon like making the case that she is hardly unsung and like hardly obscure but also she's not as revered as as other writers but her her books all have this quality where they seem like they've been around for longer than they have oh interesting like i always my brain always want to wants to put shirley jackson like with poe like in that cohort because so many of her books do feel a little like gothic and spooky in that specific way yes correct mm-hmm. um even though the, even though that's certainly not the case and people are like driving around in cars like i'm always <laughs> surprised but they're always to going re-learn. to like yeah. houses that poe would have lived in or something they're always like going to spooky houses right um, or they it, live in a spooky house yes. or they love a spooky house um this it was jonathan lethem um who I think talked a little bit in that intro about like otherness in this book. So I'll be interested to hear a little bit about that. Yeah. The Um, person also talks a lot about how sex is present in the book and says that it's just because it's completely unmentioned and not a factor at all. That only heightens the sense that sex is really involved. (laughs) And this is the kind of literary criticism that I'm kind of glad not to have to traffic in here on our dumbo book podcast where we're just a couple of dumbos okay okay that's a good thing to lay out though maybe we'll come back to that um you want yeah. to tell me about the book then uh sure i guess yeah if you're ready i'm um, ready I, for this jelly i am ready for some of the jelly i'll let you know if i want all of it okay uh mary Catherine is a girl lives in a house okay oh mary Catherine. <laughs> mary Catherine blackwood who is called Mary Cat, M-E-R-R-I-C-A-T. Okay. Affectionately by her older sister, Constance. Sure. Um, she and Constance and their sort of loopy Uncle Julian live in this big house, kind of apart from the small New England town that they all grew up, or that they both like grew up in and have, have been a part of. Um, the book we get is is... Pretty much just from Mary Cat's perspective. And so everything we get, we get through her. And she begins the book, you know, she's in town on an errand and she's talking about how she hates going into town and everybody in the town hates her. Oh, God. <laughs> and there is no love lost between her and any of these people. It's a good way to start. <laughs> um, and so what we what we get from her unfolding bit by bit is this tale of, of woe. Um, Constance was accused and went to court for allegedly murdering her parents and several other members of their family. Oh. And even though she was acquitted, this small New England town where people are, where what the community thinks about you is more important than what the law says that you did. Mm-hmm. Uh, they still all 
I don't know. They really don't like the the Blackwoods, and the Blackwoods are. It's implied that they are a little more well off, maybe than some other members of of, of the town. So there is a little bit of maybe some classism. A going, sense like, of like class, maybe a little classism, maybe a little snobbery. Um, or or the black. Oh, that's interesting. Do you think that's coming from Mary Cat, or do you think that's the people being like, "Oh, those murderous rich weirdos"? I think the the townspeople are more prone to think bad things about the Blackwood family because the Blackwood family has money and sort of sets themselves they they set themselves apart from and maybe above the rest of this community. Like they just think they're better than everybody else. So it's the kind of the kind of family that the common person can can love to hate. Sure. Do you love to hate her as the as the book starts, or are you like on her side? No, you're kind of on her side, but you also strongly have the impression <laughs> that you don't quite have all the information <laughs> that you need. Like you are, you know, from the jump. And I, I skipped the introduction because one of the Amazon reviews tipped me off to it spoiling the rest of the book, and I had not like absorbed through osmosis the the plot of this book yet. Okay. Okay. Um, so I skipped it. I got right to the book. I didn't know what was happening, but I knew from the jump that I I didn't know a hundred percent what was up. <laughs> okay. So Constance was accused of this thing. Mary Cat was in um, an orphanage briefly while everything was worked out, and Uncle Julian is not has not always been this way, but he's he hasn't really been right in the head since this thing happened to their family. Hmm. Um. So this. Every once in a while, somebody from town comes to the house to to have tea and kind of visit because they just feel this social obligation. Maybe they were close with the family before. It's not really made clear. Um, but uh, a couple people come a calling and what we get from them, like it's it's mostly Uncle Julian talking like there's somebody who comes there a lot and somebody who doesn't come there very often. And to this person who doesn't come there very often, we get mostly through Uncle Julian a fairly clear picture of what happened. So one day the family sat down for dinner and some of them had some berries with their dinner and they put some sugar on their berries. And what was in the sugar? Arsenic. Oh, no. Poison. You know, that poison. That poison. And when people eat poison, bad stuff happens to them. Like sometimes they die, like so many members of the family did. Mm-hmm. And sometimes they live, but they're not right after that. Oh, and God. that's what happened to Uncle Julian. Okay. But because Constance fixed most of the food, everyone thinks she did it. Okay. And she's a, she's acquitted. You're not really given a blow by blow of what happens in court, but she is she is acquitted and and comes back to the house and Mary Cat comes back to the house and Uncle Julian still lives there. But everybody in town still thinks she did it. Mm-hmm. And so this person who comes to to tea, whose name I'm trying to remember the the name of this person. It's not that important, but I it'd be easier than just calling her this person. Over <laughs> over. Uh. Um. Helen Clark. Helen Clark. Okay. Helen Clark. Um, Helen is trying to say to Constance, you know, you've you've been here long enough. You have you have been living alone. It's not healthy. You need to come. It's, it's time to try coming back to town, and and maybe you'll find that people are not as upset with you as you think they are. As as you you know, th- there's an impression that the Blackwoods maybe have been a little paranoid. Oh, because their their experience like Uncle Julian never goes to town. Constance never goes to town. You only get they only hear about stuff from Mary Cat and Mary Cat is a a bit of a weirdo. Oh, sure. (laughs) So there there is no explicitly like supernatural element in this book. But Mary Cat obviously believes that something is is, like some kind of magic or supernatural power or something exists because he's always talking about how she is burying stuff in the ground all around. (laughs) And that she's always performing little rituals and trying to come up with things to protect the home from people who would come and invade their privacy. Um, so any information being relayed about like, hey, I went to the grocery store and a bunch of people gave me weird looks because they think that you killed our parents, Constance. Like that is only because Mary Cat says that. Yeah. And l- listen, maybe they are. And there is some strong evidence that the people in the town do not particularly care for the Blackwoods. Sure. We'll talk about in a minute. <laughs> but the picture you get from Helen Clark is that 
Constance, if you if you tried to come back, if you tried to visit with people, you would you would get more comfortable and then maybe you would find that people are not as as bad as or okay. as scary as as you seem to think they are. Is this central like this scene that seems to be really like laying out a lot of what you need to know? Is this still Mary Cat relaying that to the reader? Yeah. Are you getting any additional so commentary? You, I mean, it's, you get it through you get it through dialogue, and and you get the you don't you don't get the sense that Mary Cat is is tampering with what other people are saying. Sure, like the, okay. what what people literally say is is given to you, the reader, and then you get to try and figure out what everybody's perspective is and where yeah. things are coming from and what is true and what isn't. Okay, but it's obviously true that Mary Cat's a bit of a weirdo. <laughs> Because she's always like she's ascribing a whole lot of sentience and independence to her, their cat Jonas. Sure, always just sharing moments with them. She to protect the grounds from outsiders. She like nails a notebook of her father's to a tree and has like a box of silver dollars buried. And she comes she... up with some magic words that she thinks will protect the house from people as long as no one says them out loud. Is she explaining where she's getting these ideas from? No. Okay. No, it's just presented sure. as true that this exists. And, uh, how old is she? So Constance is explicitly 28. Okay. Mary Cat, I believe is an adult, but you do not know how old she is. You do, you do get a strong sense of an arrested development. I think, Mm. Like maybe she is not, I don't know about permanently, but maybe she, maybe she remains sort of mentally where she was when her parents and her family died. Obviously a very traumatic thing and you could totally understand okay, uh, why that would be the case. But I, th- I think she's got, she's off in some other way. <laughs> Sure. So, okay, we've got these three people, their whole lives revolve around this this ritual and, and being apart from everybody else. And then in comes Cousin Charles. Uh-oh. Who is her, is, is the family's, like, Constance and Mary Cat's dad's brother's kid. Oh. And around the time of the unpleasantness, like, the family tried to, Charles's family tried to cut off ties but now cousin Charles is here. And even though you're getting everything from from Mary Cat, it's pretty obvious that he's here to either freeload or just find the money and kind of abscond with it. <laughs> Mary Cat obviously doesn't like him, but he is also obviously gold digging. Yeah, I mean like he he finds their dad's a like gold watch. Um Mary Cat tried to nail it to a tree. Because the book had fallen down and she thinks, oh, we got to nail some other charm up and that will get Charles out of the house. Yeah. Yeah. And so Charles like finds it and brings it in and is really, really mad because he's like, do you know how much this costs? And you just nailed it to a tree. (laughs) He's like, there's a guy and I'm not going to name his name, but there's a guy we went to college with who I didn't know very much about him, but I did know how much she paid for his jeans. Oh, Sure. Yes. And Charles seems like that kind of fella. Uh-huh. Well, but also he does strike me though as a he he spent what money he did have on some fancy jeans so he could show up and smooth talk you out of your family's money cuz he, sort of he does have some that, debts to pay or something. Yeah. It is sort of implied that the I guess Charles and, and Mary Cat and, and Constance's grandfather, like their father's father, had money that he left to everybody and the other brothers sort of squandered it oh. away a little bit. So it is possible that he is just he is out of his own branch of the family's money and he knows that it's just these two girls and their doofy uncle like sure. living in this house and so maybe they're an easy target yeah I mean, that seems that's a very like believable character motivation for me is the like well those people over no they're not gonna do anything other than just be shut up in that house until they're all gone so let me go over there and get all the money i can and then you know hop on a train to chicago or something and no one will ever hear from me again uh-huh. Um, what is, what is Constance and Mary Cat's like relationship like? Are they united against the invading Charles? 
So before Charles gets there, they're very close. Um, Constance is always saying things like silly Mary cat and like being very accommodating and trying to, to do everything that, that Mary cat and Julian want. But again, there is a, there is a sense that I don't know if trapped in a rut is the, is the right way to put it, but they are in this rhythm and they, and partly because Mary cat, rebels against any changes but they are they are very resistant to anything that would change their their rigid schedule like there are days when mary cat goes to town there are days when they neaten up the house there there are Mm. you know they they live in a in a comfortable routine and it's not maybe a healthy routine but it is the routine that they're in and so charles comes into this mary cat takes it poorly as you might predict (laughs) and keeps trying to do all this this superstitious magic stuff to to like she keeps talking about needing to clean the house to like make it forget that charles was there she Mm. like smashes a root a mirror in his room um she dumps like dirt and sticks and leaves in his bed (laughs) (laughs) is she also ascribing this to like things that do happen is she like oh man i broke that mirror and then he had a bad day does that start to happen like where she not no not okay okay um the meaning as far as i can tell like the meaning of her activity seems to exist mostly in her in her own head now it it would Mm. help to get perspective external to that but you don't really but during during this phase of the story where charles is there you do get a feeling that constance exposed to somebody who is maybe more balanced or someone who has a little bit more perspective on just like social behavior. (laughs) You get a feeling that she is beginning to think that it's kind of strange for her to be shut up here. And maybe she should, maybe it would be good for her to go out into the outside world. And this is like, she and Mary cat kind of butt heads lightly during this. Yeah. Yeah. During this period, like it, Constance will get upset with Mary Cat doing some of this stuff that she's doing, where before it was very, um, it's very accommodating. Well, yeah, because Mary Cat's still the one who is willing to go into town and do stuff for them. So, like, if she wants to nail some stuff to a tree or whatever, like, let her do it. Mm-hmm. That's fine. And so what ends what ends up happening is Charles leaves his pipe. He's always smoking this pipe. It's one of the things that he does that makes the house seem strange to Mary Cat. Mm. He's smoking this pipe. He left it up on a on a dish in his room, still lit. Idiot. Um, and Mary Cat knocks it into a wastebasket with some of the newspapers that he keeps bringing in because he just needs to know what the news is. <laughs> this guy, this guy, he ugh. he's too online. <laughs> He just can't Ugh, stop he's too online. He's the 1960s version of too online. Is <laughs> there a bunch of hand wringing about how the kids today are just they'll never they won't put down those newspapers? Really? They spit. No, I'm just oh. I'm asking. I'm making a joke for our dumb joke book podcast. I was. Do you think there head, there are pieces in like in in um, Forbes magazine about how? That's, how these these baby boomers they just won't put the newspapers that's why down it and they're seems not so unlikely yeah. to me and i reacted yeah. with such uh aghast um you know when they, when everyone's like oh how dare everybody on their on the train stare at their phones all day and then they show those like 1920s photos of all the businessmen just silently reading newspapers yeah like, we've always been we have always been this way we well, have always lived today in the news are- Kids today are always waking up at 3 a.m. and picking up their newspapers and they won't put them down. You shouldn't leave a newspaper by your bed or else you won't get any good sleep. Yeah, um, it just makes you sad. This is the first one of this is like the first. I mean, this is a terrible riff that we're on, but this is one of the first things you've said that actually made like reminded me what time period we're in. Because, you know, as we said before, like you think about her books and I don't certainly immediately think, Oh, it's the 1960s or whatever. Right. Yeah. Like you get, you do get cars and she does mention cars when you go into the, into town. And that's one of the things oh, that, that helps sort of, me. Sort of, that helps me judge the distance. Okay. That's useful. It grounds, it grounds it in, in time for sure. sure. Um, but other than that, it really does feel like a thing that could like, this could just as easily have been a book like written in 18, 
sixty it, whatever yes, as exactly. opposed to nineteen sixty whatever. It's it's I think it's consciously drawing on that sort of sure creepy tradition. I, I mentioned Poe again because I'm probably not I'm not well read enough to probably mention anybody <laughs> else. But it's a it is a it's a not explicitly supernatural, but very spooky vibe that I think Poe does a lot. What is uh, so up until this point? We've we've talked about the uh, oh, we hit pause on like the fire in the wastebasket. Do we need to resolve that scene real quick? Yeah, we kind of do. Okay, hit me with that, and then I want to ask about the spooks. Okay. So the house burns down. Oh no, what? Not all not all the way down. The top floor burns. Oh god. And the fire department, like Charles runs out and is like, I gotta get the fire department. I gotta there's a safe in there that might have money in it. I gotta <laughs> save the money. So fire department comes, they get the fire put out. It has consumed the the second floor, but most of the rest of the house is intact. Okay. And then this is the this is the part where the book just becomes lottery is all the townspeople have like gathered to watch this spectacle because uh-huh. you know house doesn't burn down every day. Yep. And they once the fire is out and partially like not the firemen like don't discourage them from doing this and this is how it goes is they just start singing this wild nursery rhyme about Constance asking people if they want tea because the tea is poison. Like it, it's a oh, sort of no. scary nursery rhyme about, about Constance being a monster and they work themselves up into this ladder where they just, dis- they just wreck the place. What? Like they, like they go throw in all there? the, yeah, they go in there and they break all the, all the good China and they throw chairs through the windows and they knock the harp down. Um, Uncle Julian dies, not in the fire, but, like as a result yeah, of the shock or something yeah like it, it's there's no specific reason why he dies just he is unwell and he dies in this in this interval okay um and while this is you know while this is happening constance and mary cat they run off into this hiding place of mary cats in the woods and mary cat says that you know she needs she, some people need poisoned and constance is like oh like you did before and mary cat's like yeah like i did before <laughs> and it's presented as a twist but like obviously the superstitious weirdo is the one who actually poisoned everybody. yeah like, I sure don't, i don't want to i sound like i'm so judgmental but obviously mary cat did it like obviously and i don't know how i don't know how surprising i was supposed to find the twist i don't think like based on on the context from the introduction that you're supposed to be surprised by it because obviously there is some secret here and obviously there is something in mary cat's head that ain't right yeah in as far as it's not right to poison your family (laughs) with arsenic sure um I don't. I don't want to make light of of any kind of like mental no mental illness that she might have. That's not. That's not what I'm saying. It's just like if you if there is a kid at school who's always sitting in the corner of the playground playing with matches by himself, and later a house burns down, it's it does not surprise you to learn that he did it. That's what well, I'm saying. You certainly and certainly in narrative fiction where you're just like, well, you wouldn't have spent. 20 pages talking about that if it weren't you know Chekhov's kid with matches yeah like Chekhov's magical weirdo if, well, if someone buries a box full of silver dollars to keep people offered property in the first <laughs> act then she's gonna so <laughs> reveal that she poisoned her parents in the third act and is know? that basically the end like I did it we're no, running no, away no. oh okay no. the rest of the, the rest of the book is them coming to their ruined house and getting back into a routine like it's, it's the same sort of routine aided stasis that they mm. that they were in before they just find a new version of normal like they only have they they clean everything up they still have a fair amount of food cuz there are a lot of preserves in the cellar and nobody went down to the cellar they still have a garden when uh, you know after they wash the ashes off of everything uh-huh things are fine and then, and while there are a lot of kids and like people getting busy who come out to the creepy old house to like play or you know, play. Whoa, <laughs> not not cool. Um, there are also people who 
start bringing them like food and stuff with little notes that's like, hey, sorry, I wrecked your harp or like, sorry about the chairs. Like people who in a mob context got ginned up and totally wrecked this house individually later given time to search their souls by themselves <laughs> feel bad for the dumb stuff we're that they sorry did. about their eat the rich campaign that just yeah, destroyed and so, this home and that's that's the that's the part of of the book that most strongly evokes the lottery like like if there were a sequel to the lottery where you followed some individual people home like maybe they would feel weird about the thing yeah that yeah. felt fine because it was they they were safely ensconced in a group and therefore like free from individual responsibility yeah, in, a, in, in a way it's, so yeah it's the it's that scene in to kill a mockingbird where scout like individually names a racist who's gonna lynch tom robinson or whatever and he's like oh shucks i guess i can't do it kid knows my name can't, oh shucks can't do it can't commit a crime um and then do they the the girls do they recover do they just like go on they, living they, in their ruined house they keep on living in their ruined house now the 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 you know the roof of it is kind of open to the elements they don't as somebody who's dealt a lot with <laughs> like water issues. ingress in my in my current home, I can only think about how the interior floor of a house is not meant to keep water out of it. Yeah. And the house is is decaying, you know, in a way because like vines grow all up it and they start to you know, they're there for long enough that the vines start to obscure the fire damage but yeah they just live in the house and that's the that's the castle is the you know now now the roof is open it is it is like a castle that's Uh. where that's you know the part of how my favorite part of anything is where they (laughs) say the name of the thing in the in the fictional work yeah like where somebody says like oh you're some kind of batman yes or or whatever like that's the that's the part of my favorite part is when the kid says hey get some air bud Right as the dog jumps and does a oh, slam nice. dunk. Yeah, that's my favorite part. Yeah, um, I could feel a breath of air on my cheek. It came from the sky. I could see, but it smelled of smoke and ruin. Our house was a castle turreted and open to the sky. Sure. Uh, so, yeah, that's the book. All right. Charles that's- does try to come back one more time, but they like every time anybody <laughs> comes in and like knocks and tries to see how they are, they just sit in the dark and pretend they're not home, <laughs> even though they're obviously home. <laughs> sucks charles sucks oh that's and they like the here's the end of the just the very end of the of the thing this is talking about um who is this talking about this is oh it's it's a boy who you know was was dared to come and stand on the porch and um poor child constance said putting the eggs into a bowl to go into the cooler he's probably hiding under the bed right now perhaps he had a good whipping to teach him manners we will have an omelet for breakfast i wonder if i could eat a child if i had the chance every line is is you know yeah, switching yeah, yeah. the character saying it i doubt if i could cook one said constance poor strangers i said they have so much to be afraid of well constance said i'm afraid of spiders jonas and i will see to it that no spider ever comes near you oh constance i said we are so happy and then the little ending, you know, the, how chapters sometimes have yep. the, the little doodle uh-huh. like icon at the end of it is a little spider. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But they just... They just keep going it, on, doing their thing. I think it is partly... Their dynamic is is strange because Constance is ostensibly like the caretaker. She's the one who's doing most of the, like the food making and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. But the, like the, the force of, of Mary Cat's personality is kind of what dictates who they, who they are as people. And the fact that they're all sequestered off, like it is, that is not coming from Constance, even though in the first half of the book, especially like pre revelation, it is implied that it is Constance that is keeping them separated off yes. from everybody else because she is so either traumatized or like scared of, of the of what treatment she will receive at the hands of, of people who think that she murdered her family. Yeah, that seems like the the biggest change you can make 
out of the out of your use of the unreliable narrator, right? Is to say like act, you know, start the book saying, well, it's that person's the problem, and I'm I'm a, I'm helping that person exist, and then by the end of the book, you realize it's the inverse. It's it's that person has been allowing the narrator to keep being the person they are. Yeah, the so you time. sort of you you walk away from it with this with this idea that. Yes, this mob's like collective action in destroying their house does prove Mary Cat's perspective mm-hmm. correct in a way. Like there is this animus and this ire that the community has for them. The fact that they start to feel remorse and start to bring stuff to try and atone for what they did, like individually, says that maybe, you know, Helen was right as well. Like maybe if Constance had, had come out and, and tried to had, had reached out and, and tried to make herself part of the community, maybe the community one person at a time and then eventually collectively would have, yeah, would have yeah. accepted her again. So yeah, it's, it's a, I don't know. It's, well, if, it's a, if the two girls didn't represent the family, and we're actually like if Constance in particular was making connections with the town as an individual also like the fact that they are kind of joined at the hip, but then kind of like we only uh, like you only view them through Mary Cat's lens means that the community can never actually like know them or really, you know, relate to them, um, sure. which might create like a two way street. What I guess what I want to know, do they do you get any backstory on like why Mary Cat did it? Does it seem to be whatever story we're told in any other part or It's this is so uh, d- based on the trailer for the movie, I think the movie plays this up <laughs> a little bit more. It's sort of implied that their dad was not like a great dude. Okay, sure. But they don't they just don't talk about it that much. I I think you can infer based on the way that Mary Cat responds to Charles. Mm. That there is some kind of real or perceived injustice that that Mary Cat suffered at the hands of her family. That sure, sure. That quote unquote made her do this, or like prompted her to to do this. But like she killed. I th- they had a little brother or cousin who took the most sugar. Uh oh. On that fateful day. <sighs> and so what could he possibly have done to them? I don't yeah. know. Like little brothers or slash cousins are, are annoying sometimes. Like Lord, Lord knows. Yeah. I've had a little brother and you've been a little brother. So well. I think we both have different. Don't you got that. Ain't I a stinker grin on your face. Kevin and McAllister sucks. over here. That's me. <laughs> Wish you all disappear. Um, yeah. I, I feel like it's, it's gotta be some, and again, you don't know. You don't know whether. You don't know what it is. Yeah. I mean, yeah, obviously, yeah. killing a bunch of people is not justified. But no, 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 no. Whether it was actually some kind of abuse that that she was suffering, or just that she did not like how she was being treated. Yes. The the impression I come away with is that it was similar to what happens at the end. Okay. Okay. Like Mary Cat loves Constance very much, and they are very close, except when people start coming in between them and then Constance drifts a little bit and then Mary cat tries to like do something about it, reimpose a new status quo that brings them back together. I think that that would be my guess, but that's not, you know, that's, it's not explicitly laid out in the, in the text anywhere. Okay. And then anything else about like, you did say once or twice that the book was like spooky, even though it wasn't ghosts and stuff. Like how does it accomplish that? It's partly just having a cat around. Like I think cats are <laughs> okay. cats in fiction. Cats in fiction are often spooky animals, and the sure. cat is is very has a very familiar esque. Oh, like a witch is familiar. not like not yeah. the cat is familiar with her, but the cat is as unto a familiar sure. <laughs> with Mary Cat. <laughs> um, and they they have some kind of, or at least Mary Cat perceives some kind of affinity between the two of them that allows them like to communicate in some way so it's it's that plus all the like specific superstitious stuff that she is doing because you're like there's a scene where she goes out to sit in a summer home but she you know like a summer house that her dad had built out sure out in the in the yard but something something was wrong with it and it just like started to rot from the inside and so nobody went out and likes to go out there anymore but she is out there in a scene and just that that sense of of decay that that uh, Jackson 
invokes is mm. is again kind of poesque, like very just a lightly spooky, without there actually being like an actual ghost around. Sure. Well, and it sounds like from all the like, why is she doing any of the quote unquote magic stuff she's doing? You're you might be forever waiting for a payoff until like the big you know house burning scene happens yeah um which is one way to to make it suspenseful cool all right well do you want to come over i'll make you some uh some blueberries and uh or blackberries whatever whatever berries you want i got loads of sugar i'm good all right you just let me know if you, you want to come over okay um, and listeners at, at home, you can send us your favorite blackberry and sugar uh, recipes to overduepod at gmail.com um, or post links to them uh, if they haven't been seized by the cops, by the dog <laughs> cops, uh, at twitter.com slash overduepod and facebook.com slash overduepod. Uh, thanks to folks reaching out to us this week, including Josh, Ash, Raul, Haley, Erica, Sam, Kaylee, Dina, Aaron, Sasha, Mitzi, Brandon, and many more. Um, Andrew, if folks want to know more about the show, where should they go? They should go to overduepodcast.com, which is our internet website. Up there, we've got links to... The books that we have read and books that we are going to read. Um, our June schedule is up. I got on it right our Twitter here. Twitter feed. Oh, you got it. So why don't you read it? Yeah. So on June third today, we're talking about "We Have Always Lived in the Castle" by Shirley Jackson. Next week, we're talking about Michael Faber's "The Crimson Petal and the White." Then we are discussing "Vicious" by V. E. Schwab. Uh, follow that with "A Raisin in the Sun" by Lorraine Hansberry. And then we will have our bonus episode for June, which is going to be a Q&A episode uh, where we will take your calls and questions, mostly just your questions, um, and maybe we'll answer them. We'll so, take your cues and we'll turn them into ace. So send us an email with those. That's the easiest way to make sure we don't lose them. Um, and then we'll we'll p- compile them and turn them into an episode of some kind. Yeah, uh, if you do put them up on on Twitter and Facebook, I will be I will I will try to aggregate those so, so we don't so we don't lose them. Yeah. Whatever whatever email is easiest for us, but whatever is easiest for you is also fine. <laughs> yeah, it's been a while since we did one of those, and uh, it's like we've done all the Twilight episodes since then. So I think some new folks have hopped on board. We'd love to hear what y'all want to know about the show. Yeah. Um, um, we've also got up there a link to our Patreon page. Yeah. That's also patreon.com slash overdue pod. And for people subscribing at the $10 a month level or above, we will be releasing our first episode of Hellboys mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. shortly, which is our uh, our divine comedy podcast. <laughs> I like that that just made you laugh. It's still a funny name. I'm very proud of the name that we came up with. <laughs> Um, and the first episode of that will be released to the public next month. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I think I think we're good, right? Yep. Just over here munching on some blackberries whenever you want to come over. All right. Great. Well, thanks for living in this castle with us, everyone. And until next week, try to stay unpoisoned and try to be happy. <laughs> That was a HeadGum Podcast.